gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come to the dispatch.com for all the good, good stuff. So uh, very excited about today's episode. Um, someone I kind of have been kicking myself not to have on for a very long time. Um, even the, I mean, one of the reasons why I was, I was a little reluctant is that as someone who got his first job in Washington at the American Enterprise Institute, um, Brookings, you know, is really the, it's, 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 it's the existential foe, at least when it comes to softball. <laughs> um, and, uh, but uh, our guest, uh, Elaine K. Mark, who is a senior fellow at Brookings and runs a center, which I'm, whose name I'm already going to mess up, on government effectiveness, mm-hmm. something along those lines, and as a Harvard fellow. She's also someone I first met, and she has no recollection of this, uh, when I worked for Ben Wattenberg at AEI, and we were working on either his book, Values Matters Most, or that some PBS documentary about it, I learned more than any self-described conservative ever has about the Coalition for the Democratic Majority, the birth of the DLC, the Progressive Policy Institute, and all things, and of course, Scoop Jackson, um, who I had to genuflect to um, (laughs) often. And uh, Elaine has been part of various factional disputes and uh, organizational disputes within the Democratic Party. I don't want to age you in any way, but for a while, and you know a great deal about it. And I, um, one last thing is I heard your interview with John Ward on his The Long Game podcast a few years ago, and I re-listened to it before we did this just this morning while walking the dogs and whatnot. And it is amazing how much of the points that you made in there have been themes about that I've revisited on this podcast and in writing for the last three years about the weakness of parties and whatnot. So this is a long buildup to say that this is one of the foremost experts on how the sausage gets made and why the parties are in bad shape um, around. And the weird thing is she's only like 100 feet from my office. Uh, Elaine K. Mark, welcome to The Remnant. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks so much. It's nice to be with you. And it is certainly nice to remember Ben Wattenberg. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So... uh, Let's 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 start with some just sort of level setting stuff. Um, by all means, if people have heard your interviews on this stuff elsewhere, uh, there'll be some redundancy, but that's fine. Um, a lot of these themes are stuff I've talked about a lot on here. But um, why don't we start with? And you wrote a book on primary politics. I think it was called Primary Politics, right? It's called Primary Politics, right? Yeah. So, um, where do primaries come from? Why did why did La Follette imposed them on us. Um, and, um, and what was their role for most of American, most of their existence? So, well, first of all, Jonah, thanks for having me here. Um, it's wonderful to talk to you and, and AEI is right next door and we are very jealous of your new elegant building. We still have a dumpy 1960s <laughs> building. Um, it, with, it does look like the headquarters for like a James Bond villain sometimes. That, oh yeah. That it, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool. It's really pretty (laughs) cool. Um, So look, primaries were an invention of the progressive era, and they were an invention that was designed to try to take power away from big city machines. That that was their sole 
you know, use. And interestingly enough, they the first primaries were held in the early part of the 20th century, and they weren't held for very long. And the reason was that the big city machines got good at um, winning primaries, okay? And so even La Follette and lots of places, they just got rid of primaries, right? They just they just got rid of them. and um, the, Or they had them in name only. Um, they did not play a role in presidential politics until 1972. For, for most of American history, uh, the delegates who went to nominating conventions were selected in some kind of caucus convention system. This was, I would not say it was a closed system. It was a semi-public system. In other words, there you could, you could change the composition of the state parties, but you had to do it from the ground up. You had to do it by taking over precincts and county, county committees, et cetera. And in fact, the most dramatic example of that was Goldwater's um, capturing the Republican nomination in 1964, where they did it in the old-fashioned way. He was he was very much in uh, you know on the on the far right of his party. He was not at all in the mainstream. Um, mainstream Republicans did not want him to get the nomination. They thought he would be a disaster, and in 64 he was. Um, but in spite of that, he was able to capture the Republican nomination even in the old system. So the the old system was not nearly as closed as people thought it would be. However, and that's where we come to 1968. 1968 in the Democrats, the huge energy brought about by the opposition to the Vietnam War and secondarily by the civil rights movement, the women's movement and all sorts of nascent social movements um, could not find a place in the 1968 convention which, you know, which nominated somebody who had not won or run in any primaries, Hubert Humphrey. And so the, the um, commission put together after 1968 to, um, you know, to look at the system basically created a set of rules that had the effect over time. And I'm not going to, I won't go through all of this. It's too, too long and boring, but it's all in my book. Um, set, created a set of rules that completely transformed the system from a semi-public system where control was basically by party leaders and elected officials to what we have today, which is a completely open system where almost anyone can participate in a primary, regardless of party, regardless of what they may have done for the party, regardless of ideology, almost anybody can participate in the nominating process. Yeah, I, I think this is sort of a crucial point that passes, you know, like I'm a Gen Xer, so born in 69. The only world I've ever known was of primaries. And yet you tell people younger than me that it doesn't have to be this way. And in fact, if you think America has been a democracy since the founding, more or less flawed, all that stuff. Well, most of that time they didn't have primaries and and even when they did have primaries, they didn't matter until I was three years old. Right. Um, <laughs> That's right. And um, and I. I remember Ben always used to quote uh, uh, that line from George McGovern, where McGovern would say, um, I opened the doors to the Democratic Party and and 20 million people walked out. 
right? <laughs> um, yeah, um, about, what, about what happened to McGovern. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I have to say, look, as someone who still has some filial loyalty to the Goldwater line in the Republican Party, one of the reasons why the Nixonites and the moderates were right in their prophecy that Goldwater would be a disaster was that it was self-fulfilling because they refused to show up to vote for Goldwater. Um, but <laughs> be that as it may. Um, so one of the points that that you've made that has really sort of stuck with me and I've built on a great deal, and I think it is still true, although we should probably talk about how the UK is kind of going our way a little bit, but for the most part, there is no advanced democratic nation in the world where the, except for America, where the parties can't pick their own nominees. That's right. Is that, that's still that, largely yeah, true. That, right? that is still correct. I mean, the United States is unique in giving up what is the key source of party strength, which is the ability to nominate and put on the ballot someone. Um, the parties at the presidential level, at the congressional level, have simply ceded that to the primaries. And it has, it has had a couple effects, but the, mo the most important effect was, frankly, what we will forever more be known as the Donald Trump effect, mm. which is that you can, in that system, nominate somebody who has absolutely no experience and some people would say no, no um, right or no, no moral right to be president of the United States, because there's no what there what you've what you've lost is the peer review. You've lost the judgment of other politicians about whether or not this person can actually do the job, and that I think is incredibly dangerous. Okay, that that means we are open to um, uh, demagogues and we're open to authoritarians. Um, you know, I, I when I started talking about this with uh, with my fellow Democrats, you know, their first reaction was, "Ah, oh, that couldn't happen to us." And I said, "Are you kidding? Of course it could happen to us, right?" I mean, Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty was talked about as a presidential candidate not too long ago. Um, you know, uh, Oprah. Right um, now, I actually think Oprah might be an all right president, but you know, come on. I mean, the fact is, we that it's 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 a wish and a prayer when you have a nomination system like this. Um, and what the old system used to do is the old system used to have people who knew something about politics and something about government evaluating the potential candidates. And we've we've completely lost that, and it's dangerous. It's absolutely, positively dangerous. Yeah, in the in the lead up to 2015 and 2016, I used to tell my liberal friends, you know, look, you know, shame on GOP for Trump, reality show star, blah 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 blah. But this trend of celebrities hijacking the process at a late date, this is a much bigger problem for Democrats than it is for Republicans. Our bench is like Scott Bayo and Ted Nugent. You know, you guys have got Oprah and Tom we've Hanks got, and all yeah. of these people. We've, and, got a, we've got a big bench of celebrities. And, yeah. you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm not saying that a celebrity could never be a good president, but I'm saying that the job is just too damn complicated. Okay. The job is too big. I'm sorry. I don't care how smart you are. Okay. 
um, you need a little bit of seasoning in this to actually walk into the presidency. And, you know, I, I served Bill Clinton and Al Gore. Clinton had been governor for 12 terms or, and Al Gore had been a congressman and a senator. And, you know, they had an enormous amount of experience. And for all of us, learning the whole federal government was like drinking out of a fire hose. That that's how it was. And um, one of the things you see about Biden, which is really unusual, is how completely comfortable he is um, right in there, because that's what 35 years, 38 years, however long, that's what gives you. Yeah. On the you know, when I try to explain this to, to college students and stuff, you know, one of the things I try to do is change the scenario just slightly and say, do you think a corporation should hold an election among its biggest customers for who should be CEO? You know, I mean, it makes no sense when you think about it. Should the Academy Award now just be done like American Idol, where you just call in and you vote for the movie you like? I mean, we understand in other contexts that there's supposed to be some filtration process, some interview process that you come through. And um, and that sort of goes out the window. And on your point about the Democrats, it could happen to the Democrats, too. Um, talk to me a little bit about Bernie Sanders, because it, to me it almost happened to the Democrats. I mean, Bernie Sanders is as much as, as, as much a non-Democrat as Donald Trump was a non-Republican up until 2015 or whatever. Um, what, what was your take on how Bernie Sanders worked the democratic party and almost took the nomination? Well, there was, there was, there was, and remains a lot of hostility within the democratic party to Sanders because People do not think he's been a good Democrat. He's run people against. He's he's run ca- supported candidates in against incumbent Democrats in primaries. Okay, which Democrats were not too happy about. Um, and he's advocated a, a, a policy platform that the Democratic Party has spent many decades trying to stay away from because of its unpopularity, no, n- notably socialism or as he calls it, democratic socialism. And the problem is that the subtlety between the, the, the difference between democratic socialism and socialism is, is completely lost. The label right. is a killer. And they, and, and, and furthermore, he seems to have a, they, the, the whole Sanders left has a knack for um, using terminology that is really counter to their own interests. So defund the police, one of the dumbest terms I've ever heard in politics. Reform the police is quite a different story, right? Because they're, they're, they've done a lot of bad things, particularly to African-Americans. But defund the police says to everybody, oh, we're going to take all the money away. And therefore, when somebody's breaking into my house, there's nobody to call. What? That's crazy, right? So, I mean, the, the, the sort of that extreme left wing that is attracted to Sanders um, it, it does the party a great deal of damage. And yet Sanders votes with the Democrats in the Senate, has since he's been there, votes with um, the Democrats, voted with the Democrats in the House. Um, you know, he he did sign the pledge, which we created at the end of the last election, that um, people running for Democratic candidate for president had to support Democrats down the line. So he did sign that. So, you know, the party went as far as it could go. 
um, in in terms of making sure that Bernie said publicly he was a Democrat. Now, uh, the the issue is if you run back twenty sixteen, um, would the outcome have been different if Bernie say, if it was the old system or something like the old system? And I have to say, it most likely would have. But the a lot of the young people coming into the Democratic Party are farther left than the older people, and they're farther left than the African Americans, which are the real core of the party. Um, you know, in my lifetime, African Americans have gone from being on the left wing of the party to being the 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 center, the the, the centerpiece of the moderate Democratic Party. It's one of the most dramatic changes in American political yeah, life. It, it yeah. really is. Yeah, I mean, the you know Clyburn and his. You know, his those voters in South Carolina, the, the church ladies, if you will, okay, they are the rock solid center of politics. They're not way over on the left, and they don't like Bernie Sanders one bit. Didn't like yeah. him in South Carolina, uh, etc. So my guess is that if we still had the old system, given the power that African Americans hold within Democratic Party organizations all over the country, especially in the South, but frankly, in a lot of other countries, uh, um, states too. Um, my guess is he, he wouldn't have gotten far. He might have gotten some some places, uh, but not far. There are state parties like New York and California and, of course, Vermont, where there's a heavy sort of white left wing. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't think he would have gotten as far as he did. So it, it Explain your take on something. I've asked a bunch of people this, and I get different answers every time. In 2016, Hillary Clinton beat Bernie Sanders. And in 2020, virtually with the exception of Joe Biden and a couple of those people whose names we can't remember, basically the entire Democratic field thought the important thing to do was campaign for the Bernie Sanders lane and to one extent or another, um, uh, you know, promising to do all sorts of things. I mean, we all want to talk about this as a structural thing too. One of my big problems is everybody seems to be campaigning as if we live in a parliamentary system. And if my team gets in, we get to do everything we want. <laughs> yeah. And you had candidates promising that on day one, they were going to, confiscate guns or ban this or do that and things that they don't have the power to do. But anyway, that's the that, that, second. Why wouldn't there be other than, you know, Joe Biden who did not look like he, he did not have a good start. Right. right um, no. And it was only when basically Clyburn rang the bell and said, dear God, we may actually nominate someone who can lose this to Donald Trump that people came to their senses and vote for Biden. Why wasn't there somebody? I mean, I, I kind of kind of hoped it would be Amy Klobuchar or somebody like that, who I think is more sensible than she sounded in the primaries. But it seemed like there was no incentive structure to run as any forget a DLC Democrat, even as just a, a younger Joe Biden Democrat. Why? Why? What? What explains that? I I think that I think that well, first of all, I don't think they all ran like that. I think that Klobuchar, to a lesser extent, Cory Booker. Um, and and also Pete Buttigieg were they they were they were trying to run in that center center lane where that that Biden was in. So I, I think that that Globachar particularly Buttigieg, they, they were in that center 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 lane. Um, 
but I think there were too many of them. And they each had their own, you know, unique problems. Um, Buttigieg was just too damn young. I mean, he looked even younger than he was. And, you know, I think people said, no, wait a minute, this is this is like a big job and we got to do this. We got to do this right. We can't take a risk on, on this guy. Um, so I think that was Buttigieg's problem. Um, Globachar was sort of new and we'd already done the woman thing. And I think that there was a little bit of hesitancy there. Um, and but basically what happened in the Democratic primaries was Iowa and New Hampshire were not representative of the base of the Democratic Party, and South Carolina was. The South Carolina is the first place, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, they have they have under 5% of African Americans. It may be as low as 1%. It's very, very low in both those states. So, um, you know, I think it was that we didn't have, an, and this will, by the way, sh this debate is gonna shape the next nomination season. Um, that it wasn't until you got to South Carolina that the base of the party had a powerful voice. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I, from a politically homeless but still conservative point of view, um, it seems to me that, you know, you mentioned defund the police. Um, there was just this piece in New York Magazine this week, which got into the, some of the polling on this. Um, even though it was, I, I mean, I was writing columns about this last August. It was patently obvious that this was a terrible message for the Democratic Party. Yeah, right. <laughs> and one of, and there was there was polling from Gallup that showed that super majorities of minorities, you know, blacks, Hispanics, either wanted the same amount of policing or more policing, and only a tiny fraction of them wanted anything like less policing. Never mind, no policing. Um, and so one of one of my arguments about the problem with weak parties is that um, and I can I'd like your take on it as a as a as a general theory, but also on the specifics is that because the parties don't do the jobs that they're supposed to do, starting with this nomination stuff, um, they have deliberately and inadvertently basically outsourced all manner of party functions to other institutions. That's right. Whether it's Planned Parenthood or the NRA, um, whether it's, you know, institutions in my world. I was at National Review for 20 years. We play a major role in sort of this process. Um, to mainstream media all over the place where they are doing voter education, voter mobilization, all of these kinds of things. And that, I mean, one of my favorite things to watch during that defund the police craze was watching the arc from, first of all, the media, sort of the MSNBC, New York Times op-edge crowd, pushing this defund the police thing like it was a good idea, and then having this holy crap moment, this is bad politics, and trying to pull back. And they would have, they have guest after guest on MSNBC saying, of course, you don't, when you say defund the police, you don't mean to fund the police, you mean reform the police. And then the guests would say, no, 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 we actually mean defund the police. And the New York Times op-ed page actually ran a piece saying, yes, we actually mean abolish the police. And this seems to me a perfect example or a perfect illustration, and there's a lot of it on the right, of how when you outsource the party's interests to institutions who don't actually know what the party's interests are, yeah. it's very easy for them 
to screw things up royally. You bet. And the the role that cable news networks, and I'm a Fox News contributor, I don't know how much longer that'll last, the role that Fox and, and, and MSNBC and CNN play in the primary process, where their incentive structure is to heighten conflict and anger more than it is to pick the best nominee for the party, is really doing a profound disservice to the to the country and to the causes that they 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 care about. I mean, I, anyway, I'm done with my rant. What do you think about all that? Oh yeah, no, I I, I agree with your rant. I mean, the, the 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 fact of the matter is there is nobody in the party who can impose message discipline, particularly when you do not have a president. Now, right. to his credit, Joe Biden said early on, "No, I'm not in favor of that." Nancy Pelosi on defund the police. Nancy Pelosi said, I'm not in favor of that. Steny Hoyer said, I'm not, not in favor. Jim Clyburn said, you know what I mean? Right. All the Democratic leaders. It took them a while, though. And, and that's he, part of the yes. problem. Right. And well, and part of it is it took them a while because it, it took a while for this thing to grow into yeah. the into the sort of weird, you know, um, thing that it that it became. Um but when there's no president in the United States, even in, even in the old system, that would be a difficult thing to do. Secondly, whether it's the NRA or any left-wing group, what, whatever it is, those groups have an interest in attracting attention and dollars. And, and so, you know, they're not interested in the cohesive role that the party has. And we haven't had very strong party leaders because it's not perceived to be an important job. Um, and so, you know, we really do need to think about how we get better people into political parties, how we reform fundraising so that parties have an advantage over interest groups, because it's the interest groups that, 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 that you know, cause us to be pulled apart. Parties now are treated in the law just like any other interest group. And that's not right. I mean, parties should be able to raise more money in bigger chunks because they have an integrative function. They can't, they can't be all or nothing because their job is not the promotion of this idea over that idea. Their job is, is to win elections. And so they have they have to do that. And you know, there's a study by a guy named Ray LaRaja, University of Massachusetts. And one of the things that he shows that they interviewed a lot of people, including people who had moved from, as many people do, um, interest groups to the political party. And one of the quotes that that stands out is the person saying, well, yeah, I still believe in all the things that I believed in. I think this guy was part of an, uh, a right. I think he might have been an NRA employee, moved to the Republican Party. He said, but my point of view has changed when I change institutions. Because the job now is not a single focus and getting as much attention, as much money as you can for one issue. The job now is to elect Republicans and you have to have a broader perspective. And so I, I think that parties are important. And yet, you know, uh, Americans continue to see parties as the root of all evil. And that's got to change. Yeah, that's and that's again, that's part of my argument, too, is that it is a function of weak parties that people have internalized partisanship rather than letting the parties have those fights. Right. They, they've 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 turned it into a kind of tribal identity um, precisely because the institutions that are supposed to have a long term vision of their own self-interest 
have given up on it. And so when you when you point out, and I think you're entirely right, that the leaders of the parties, it's not considered a particularly important job. But the reason it's not a particularly important job is because the leader of the party doesn't have outsized power in the process of picking who the nominees are going to be. Right. They, they, the, the leaders of the party have no advantage in fundraising, in raising money over any other group out there, nor do they have any role in picking the nominees, whether it's a state party picking congressional candidates or it's the national party picking a presidential candidate. And so, of course, you know, they're not going to be listened to. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yeah. they're not going to get attention. I mean, we've had many a very talented, um, you know, party chairman in the country. And very often, by the way, party chairmen go on to become members of Congress and Senate, et cetera. So it's not like it's not a good stepping stone. It's just that there's no institutional power yeah. um, in the job. Um, so I don't want to get you in trouble with your Democratic friends, but do you think that Mitch McConnell was right in the late nineties about McCain Feingold and getting, you know, he had that famous line where he says, what we've done here is we haven't gotten money out of politics. We've gotten the parties out of politics. Do you think he was basically right about that? He was absolutely right. I mean, that was a big mistake. That was a big mistake. I mean, not only it's worse than that. We got by taking money out of the parties and by getting rid of that, what you did is you drove fundraising underground. We drove it into these black boxes where now there are all sorts of bizarre organizations that we don't know who funds them. Mm. You know, and the and the key, the key to money in politics is not limiting the money. It's not, you know, putting, you know, building a bureaucracy to say you can spend money on this and you can't spend money on that. The key is transparency. The key is knowing who's and and what what those reforms did was create the black box of campaign finance. And yeah, it was a mistake. Let's talk for a second about how you fix some of this stuff. Cause I mean, as you were saying, I mean, uh, I, I mean, we're in violent agreement um, on a lot of this stuff. And, you know, part of my, I've had a newfound appreciation. I went back and read my Martin Van Buren and my James Madison and all that stuff. And the point you're making about the interest group, the whole point of the parties was to build a coalition of interests who would rather something over nothing. And so every individual, you know, wheat farmers and cotton farmers, the, their interests aren't identical, but they're more in common than the, than the, the, the pig farmers and the goat farmers or whatever. And so they're willing to make compromises for the point of forming a coalition in the form of a party that then can do better deliver for their interests than the other party can. Yeah. And when you take that dynamic out, the NRA becomes, and I'm not criticizing the NRA, it's same thing with Planned Parenthood, all these places, their incentive structure is they get 100%. Yeah. And not compromise. And, and, and so how do you fix this? How do you get to, I mean, other than my immediate solution of, of getting rid of primaries and going back to state conventions, what, what, what in the realm of the possible could we do that you think has a chance of, of strengthening the parties and letting them perform the function that they're supposed to play? Well, I, 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 th- I think we can't get rid of primaries. Let me just start with that. I think that's too ingrained. In fact, it's funny, you, you, you born in 1969, the first edition of primary politics, um, I was 
came out in, oh my God, uh, years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, actually it was in 2009, first edition. Uh And I was giving a talk on Cape Cod to, about the book, a little, small little group. And an elderly woman who was probably 80, maybe even older at, in 2009, came up to me and said, thank you. You just explained something that I haven't been able to understand for years. And I said, what's that? She said, when I was young, political conventions were really exciting. And then they stopped being exciting. Well, of course they were exciting. When she was young, she can remember listening to them on the radio or watching a couple of them on TV, and the action was there. The decisions were made there. Now the conventions are kind of an afterthought. They're uh, they're like an anachronism and because uh, the decisions are made early. But I don't think we can go back. But here's what I do think we can do. I think the parties can, can provide a peer review of candidates as follows. The Democratic governors, the Republican governors, the Democratic House and Senate, the Republican House and Senate, and the national committees can all take votes on who should be the nominee. And they can vote for, the way I would structure it is they could vote for several people. And the the, the concern should be not, is this person right wing or left wing or with me on the issues? The concern should be, is this person given their background and what we know so far of their character, is this person somebody who could be a president of the United States? Period, end of sentence. Make the threshold very low. Make it 15%, you know, so that Bernie Sanders gets in there and, and you know, Joe Biden gets in there and a lot of people get in there. Who doesn't get in there, right? Who doesn't get in there are people who are coming out of nowhere or movie stars or you know, uh, uh, popular musicians or, you know, somebody who ran a company that's very popular but has never done any public service. I mean, those people probably don't get in there. Now, they might, they might, but I, I would have them do just a very low-level screening. If, my guess is if you had done that in 2016, Donald Trump would not have made that cut. Then once you once you go through that, then the people who make the cut can be in the in the in the party's um, debates because the debates have become really, really important. And they're good in the sense that they allow people without a lot of name recognition and attention to at least get a look, you know, have somebody look at them. So so do that. You could go even further and say if you're not sanctioned by the party, you can't get on the primary ballot, or you can't get on the general election ballot as as a Democrat or as a Republican. Um, I think the most we can do, and probably the most we should do, is a kind of minimal screening function so that people do not, um, you know, get the nomination as Trump did sort of on a fluke. Now, a little interesting story. Back in the 1920s, Guess who wanted to run for pre- for the Republican nomination? Hmm. A guy named Henry Ford. Yeah, extremely popular in the country. Every people were buying cars. This, he'd done this. The Republican Party said, "No, you manufacture cars. You're a great guy. You're a rich guy. You've done a great thing, but we don't see you 
you know, as the standard bearer of the Republican Party. They just said no to him. And, you know, if, if you're worried about rich people taking over the country, if you're worried about billionaires, you know, buying the presidency, which, you know, we were. I mean, look at look at, you know, Mayor Bloomberg, right, with his late entry into the Democratic. If you're worried about celebrities, you're worried about billionaires, you're worried about people who are funded by outside sources, by funded by Russian candidates or Chinese candidates, um, Chinese-backed candidates, Russian-backed candidates. Um, if you're worried about that kind of perversion of democracy, then you want some kind of peer review before the voters vote. You'll still be left with a lot of people. You'll still be left with five, 10 people. Then you can have the voters vote. And would you have this you know, basically sounds like what you're talking about is basically having a, a having the parties basically having an HR department where they screen <laughs> the people that because like we have like I have this startup that I'm the co-founder of and we got a lot of applicants for jobs. And I can't talk to everybody about every job. So we have people screen and then they come and I, you know, we look at the best ones who make it past the screening process. I, I in principle, I have zero problem with that. I, I, I need to think about it more about whether this is the best option. I'm less of a democracy fetishist than you are. So, it, you know, <laughs> I think I think a vibrant democracy depends on on many of its most important institutions being undemocratic. Yeah. Um, you know, the Catholic Church does not have a popular vote for pope. Right. And um, <laughs> uh, and military units don't elect their generals. I mean, I, I think that's right that in a pluralistic society. You have to have the right of exit. You cannot be trapped in any institution. But institutions need to be sticky. And one of the things that makes them sticky is being unique and having control over their own processes. And that goes for parties more than almost anything else. And so absolutely, if we could have smoke-filled rooms, I'd be fine with it, to be brutally honest. Right. But that's not just well, because of smoke I, I, just, I think we are past that, okay? I, think I agree, but, you know, I'm a... I'm a romantic and, a, you know, this, this podcast is called the remnant for a reason. I am understand. I understand the times have passed me by. That's fine. But, um, with in this, in this grand HR department screening process would the people making these decisions would have to vote publicly or privately secret or not. You know, I think they'd have to vote privately. Yeah. I think that would be the only way to do it is, is it'd have to be a private vote. Cause you know, look at the, Look at the we've we've already seen these differences. Look at the vote on um, in the Republican caucus on retaining, um, you know, the majority leader or I right. guess, Liz Cheney. Yeah. But what's her what's her is she the majority whip? I guess she's the whip. Conference uh, chair, I think. Is conference the, chair. Right. Look, look yeah, at yeah. that vote. I mean, you know, she won that vote easily. I'm not sure she would have won that vote easily had it been a public vote. No. Yeah, I think it's absolutely true. So so I think if if what you're asking people to do is look, screen these people for us, make a judgment as to their their readiness to be president. And and it has to be at a high level of government because the presidency is the highest level. So, you know, if you're you you might be the you know, county commissioner someplace of a little county someplace, that doesn't mean you understand the presidency. Senators, half of whom who want to be president, they understand the presidency. Congressmen do. They work with the presidency. Governors do. So I would keep it at a fairly high level where the people 
who are making those decisions know something about what the office is and what the what the, what the president does. It's 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 a it's a terrible situation we're in where um, just anybody can come out of anywhere and run for an office that is enormously complex, just vastly complex. Um, I want to go to some other reform ideas in a second, but um, I know you've written and talked about this before and it sort of ties in with this, you know, it's a particular problem on the Republican side where you get fad issue candidates, you know, I mean, Herman Cain was a very nice man, but right. Herman Cain had you know, no that kind of thing. President. Or Tom Tancredo, when he ran, he basically ran just to popularize immigration stuff and become a more higher profile guy on the right, that kind of thing. Um, and sometimes it's just, as far as I can tell, an effort to sell books or land gigs oh, on a, TV. It's, a, it's the look, it has become the odd. Look, uh, running for president should not be the same as auditioning for your spot on CNN or Fox. And that's what it's become. For a lot of people, it's the way to get themselves a TV gig. But I, so I talked to uh, Joe Trippi about this a long time ago. And, and because there is sort of a s different sociology between the parties, Marianne Williamson notwithstanding, um, it seems like his explanation was, was that the, Hail Mary, silly candidates in the Democratic primaries, they're not doing it as much to get a TV show or a radio show or a book contract. They're doing it because they are running to be Secretary of Labor in the next administration. And the way that because the Democratic Party is more, you know, generally speaking, the party of government, like raising your profile within the party is a good way to move up the ladder within the party. Um, do you think that's still the explanation or do you think there's something else going on there? No, I, I, I mean, you know, that is true for some of them, but I don't think that should be what we're doing here. Um, but we still have, look, the Marianne Williamson problem is a big one. Okay. She has no business running for president and she has no business being president. Um, but, and when she is running, what it means is she's taking time away from from other candidates who are serious candidates. So, you know, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden had serious debates over health care that people needed to hear about. But when you have several candidates on the stage that you have to give some time to, it diverts the attention from the main candidates and from the issues that people need to know about. So it 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 hurts your whole nomination process. It hurts what people, you know, get to look at um, when you have too many people on the stage and for whatever reason, for whatever reason. And that's one reason to just, it's one reason to, to have some kind of, of, you know, peer review system. So one of my other um, obsessive topics on here, other than the weakness of parties is the weakness of Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm of the school that that Congress was intended to be the supreme branch of the three branches of government. And I can I'm sure you know those arguments. So it's Article one. It's Article one. It's the only branch that can fire members of the other branches. It's, it writes it cuts their paychecks. It can declare war. It can raise taxes. The other ones can't do that. And the other branches can't do squat to it. It's right. you know, it's very clear to me. But 
and also that the co-equal this co-equal phrasing is basically Nixonian propaganda from Watergate. But yeah. be that as it may, um, my problem is that Congress, and this is every bit as much. Uh, and, and again, I want to stipulate: you don't know everything. I all my writings is up. I want to concede up front: the GOP is a garbage fire. Fine, but. Um, it's every bit as much of a problem with Democrats. It's a structural problem in our, in, in, in our government that um, Congress doesn't do its job anymore. It has outsourced so much stuff to the administrative state. It's outsourced stuff to the executive and judicial branches. You have people, it's a parliament of pundits where people care more about getting booked on Morning Joe or on Fox and Friends than they care about doing their jobs. And I think a very good illustration of this was how Nancy Pelosi handled the, the second impeachment. I was very much in favor of impeaching Trump, very much in favor of him being convicted, but that the way the impeachment was handled was an indictment of the entire institution because, first of all, Nancy Pelosi should have made some effort to work with Republicans, so it was speaking as an institution, less as a party. Mm-hmm. And the way the article was written was a way to repel Republicans and make it a wedge issue for Republicans rather than a way to sort of force them into, into signing on. Um, not to say you would have gotten huge numbers, but you could have gotten more than 10. Yeah. And, um, and too much our, 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 our legislative branch operates as if we live in a parliamentary democracy and our party is the only party that they care about. And they don't care about getting votes from across the aisle. They don't care about trying to govern from the center. Um, and I, I'm wondering, A, do you agree with it? And what, I mean, other than the weakness of parties, what are the other major culprits in your mind for this? Is it the big sort? Is it um, the way the, the, the primary system makes people more concerned about uh, a primary challenge than a general election challenge? I mean, where, where, how do you see it if, if you think I'm generally right? Yeah, I, I think Congress is falling down on its job. I think there's no doubt about it. I, I would use a slightly different example, which I also use for the presidency, by the way, which is that Congress got, is, is like, the, like some presidents, is getting out of the business of government and getting into the business of jabbering, right? And the problem with that is that reality strikes. And so um, I wrote a book called Why Presidents Fail. And, and the, the nut of the book is that presidents get elected because they're, they've got golden tongues in one way or another, right? I mean, they just talk a good game. When they get into office, they fail because reality happens and they actually fail. They have governance failures. I mean, you know, Trump would be president now had he managed the coronavirus differently. Um, and, you know, the uh, Obama and Bush in their second terms had some real governmental crises that they botched, okay, that they just botched. And uh, lucky for them, they didn't have to run for reelection again. So it, it's part of the bigger picture. Congress is doing the same thing. They don't do oversight anymore. They don't hold committee hearings where they're trying to figure out, are you doing the job you're supposed to do and are you doing it in the best way possible? They do what the political scientists called fire, um, firehouse hearings, which is, oh my God, my God, the house is burning, something horrible is happening, et right. cetera. 
And so I think a little bit of this is they, they need to somehow get back to the job of governance. I'm not quite sure how you force that to happen. The other thing is exactly as you said, though, it's because of the big sort and gerrymandering. And of course, gerrymandering is responsible for some of the problem. But frankly, the big sort is a much bigger problem. Right. Um, let's voting let's, with your feet is the real issue. Right. Yeah. I mean, let's yeah. face it. People these days are mobile and they live in neighborhoods that are with people like themselves. OK, that just that just is happening, has been happening to us. And so um, because of that, Congress, very few congressmen worry about reelection. They worry about primaries. That's how they get knocked off. That's how they get defeated. They don't get defeated in the general election. I mean, we end up with, out of 435 seats every two years, we end up with literally a handful, 20 to maybe 30 seats that could change parties. And that's it. Now, that that did not used to happen. So I think that that's very responsible for that. And I, and I also think that what it does is it drives both parties to their extremes because they're both worried about primary challenges. I would, to, I would have loved to see, by the way, a private vote in the Senate on impeach on convicting Trump. Oh, for sure. Uh, private vote would have been much different than that public. Yeah. vote. I don't know if you would have gotten to conviction, but you would have gotten close. It would have gotten sure. close, right? I don't know yeah. if he would have gotten to conviction either, but yeah, it would have been a I mean, different vote. And I think you would definitely gotten to conviction if the tally of the vote was never made public, right? Because the problem is you're still terrified. If everybody votes for conviction, then they know you voted for conviction. But if, if you don't know the margin, you just know that it beat 67 votes. I could see <laughs> almost everybody, including the really Trumpy jackwads. Sure. Who because they want to be president and they oh, want him out of the way. They they would have voted too. It was very amusing to see Ted Cruz, right? He must have been internally so conflicted about this because the best thing that could happen to him is to get rid of Trump, get him sure. out of the picture. And yet Cruz is obviously playing to a, a very big base, not just in Texas, but in the Republican primaries in general. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it is, a, so I've been using the belling the cat analogy for, five years now <laughs> yeah it's in the interest of all the mice to put a bell on the cat yeah it's not in the individual interest of any one mouse to be the one to do it to do it right and, <laughs> and so for five years we've been watching republicans saying why won't somebody else rid me of this troublesome reality show host and <laughs> yeah um and that's why he's the is the nominal front runner for the the nomination in 2024 and and your screening thing no longer works by the way now because yeah, the, screening, the screening doesn't work once somebody gets past it and build builds up a a base in the party the screening thing doesn't work but but in addition the screening thing really only works when somebody's coming in for the first time yeah because in theory i mean donald trump as at this point in time has more experience and more knowledge than he did in 2015. So the, the screening thing is only to sort of screen for, um, experience, capacity, aptitude and, and character. And, you know, one of the things that may happen to Trump in the next four years has everything to do with all the investigations going on into his business practices. And I think that may be more important than anything else. Yeah, I just I, I find this whole passing the trash to other institutions to do their jobs 
very <laughs> frustrating. I mean, yeah. I mean, just, uh, you know, you, you realize that Congress, the courts, the voters, um, the media establishment had almost zero effect in imposing better behavior on Trump and Giuliani, but Dominion's lawyers are the only ones to have any teeth to them and, and elicit better behavior. And that's, that's a sad commentary. And I'll take it, but it's a sad commentary. Um, so where do you come down on the jungle primary stuff? Um, or first, pat, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, rank choice voting, I'm sorry. Yeah. Rank choice. Oh, I think rank choice voting in the primaries is actually a good idea. Okay, I think that it it helps mitigate the, um, you know, the most extreme candidate getting getting the votes. I think in I think it's very good for primaries. I would not use it for other offices, okay, because I think that's too. I think, you know, for all that parties have lost their power, they still have enormous enormous um, symbolic power and meaning. I mean, one of the reasons that independent independent parties or people who call or there's independent movements never get any place is that people don't know what it means. Kind of everybody kind of knows what the Democrats mean and kind of knows what the Republicans mean. And that's the one that's the most powerful, powerful thing, frankly, that they have left. So I would def, I would definitely look at rank. I would definitely be a fan of ranked choice voting in primaries, um, but not in the general election. Yeah. That's, that's, that's where I am moving to. I mean, again, I'd rather get rid of the primaries. I'd rather have, you know, trials by combat than primaries at this point. Um, but, um, not to sound like Giuliani, but, um, the, you know, I often say that there's a reason why vanilla is the most popular flavor of ice cream in America. And it's not because it's very many people's favorite flavor. It's the, it's, it's the most acceptable to most people. Right. right? It, it's like everyone's it's 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 the least objectionable option. And that's why every wedding serves vanilla ice cream because, because they know it's not gonna piss off anybody. If you have ranked choice voting, the more vanilla candidates are advantaged because they're the least objectionable rather than the most inspiring. And right. I would rather live in a country ruled by Mitch Daniels as czar than you know <laughs> any that's people right. who get picked by the primaries. And so all right. I want to hear your case against the electoral college because I know you're skeptical of it or, or think it's time to go. But um, there is a very, there's a small group of, of people out there I'm a member of who belong to the club that says we should expand the House of Representatives. That it, 435 is too small a number. It, it, it's not a cure-all, no. but it exacerbates all these problems that we're talking about where you're just representing too many people. It's too easy to gerrymander. You just think about it. If you flip it on its head, you think about it this way. If every representative represented one voter, it's literally impossible to gerrymander. Mm -hmm. And that principle kind of holds true as you move out is that smaller communities are by definition going to be more, co more coherent communities. That's um, right. Where do you come down on all that? Oh, I think that's, I think that's a great idea too. I mean, I, I think there's two realistic ideas out there to get us around the current electoral college problem. One, one of them is the national voter com compact, compact yeah. right? Which is just to, when 200 states representing 270 electoral votes decide that they're just going to vote for the national winner, 
that's it. It's nice. It's simple. Um, I think it will stand up to court scrutiny because states have the, you know, it's clear that states have the authority to award their electoral votes any way they want. So um, I think that's easy. I also think that expanding the number of people in the House makes perfect sense because, you know, we didn't have this problem until recently in American history. Why? Because as we added states, we just added members of the House of Representatives. You see, you ju- we just added. It was only the beginning of the century that we capped the House at 435 statutorily. It's, a st- it's not in the Constitution. It's just a statutory change. We could make it more. Now, I'll add another twist to this, by the way, um, which is at some point you don't want the the problem with expanding the House is at some point the numbers get so unwieldy that it becomes extremely difficult for it to operate as a body. Right. And and as a deliberative body. And, And there are times when you really do want it to operate deliberatively. Um, there's a there's an a way to change that, too which we couldn't do in the days before computers, which is to have fractional votes. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you're the congressman from a, from the state of Wyoming, which has, what, a grand total of 450,000 <coughs> people or something, maybe you don't cast one whole vote. Maybe you cast point, I don't know, 63% of a vote and... Other people, congressmen from a place in California that maybe has, you know, a million seven people in it, they cast one point something votes. Now, this whole idea of fractional votes was never very popular because they're just sort of unwieldy. But these days, how do you you vote anyway? I mean, you vote through a computer system. It's pretty pretty simple to add up votes, um, even if they are fractions. And what you could do if you had fractional votes is you could limit the, the the bodies on the floor of the house, but you could actually reflect in a, in a, in a real mathematical precision, you could have one man, one vote reflected in the house of representatives. And I think that would, that would be one way to solve the problem. Um, and, and, and it would also, by the way, give you this flexibility because, you know, right now the electoral college problem is, Two coasts in Texas. That's that's the problem. California, New York, Florida, Texas. That's like the whole darn country, and 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 they're they're underrepresented. All of the people in those states. That isn't immutable. I mean, it could be that in thirty-five years there are other parts of the country that have the bulk of population. I mean, people could leave California en masse and go to other countries. Well, at that, so at that point, you want this to reflect population again. And um, I'd, I'd say that using some kind of fractional voting system is something that really should be considered. I've talked about this within the Democratic Party as well for delegate votes. Um, again, fractional votes is, is just sounds like a royal pain in the neck until you enter the computer age where everybody can just hold up their phone and calculate the fractional votes. And it's, it's not a big deal anymore. Yeah. I mean, and when you think about, I mean, I got to think about it too, because it sounds to me like witchcraft, but that's how that's my attitude towards almost anything involving math. Um, <laughs> but when you think about, you know, shareholder votes and 
in yeah. Wall Street, it's everyone's got a different set of number of votes because they have a different well, number they, of shares. Yeah, they, have yeah, so. they have different they have different kinds of stock, and with that goes different kinds of votes. It's interesting. I'll, I will I will think about it. Um, see, your your only problem with expanding the house is at some. I mean, four hundred thirty five is difficult enough, but uh-huh. they they can deliberate. They can sort of get a sense of the body, et cetera. You start getting past that, and and you're really into a situation where it's very hard to have deliberation. Yeah, well, I mean, so I'm 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 skeptical. I'm more skeptical at that point because a I don't see a lot of deliberation as it is. Um, and B, um, you know, New Hampshire's house of delegates has like 400 and something members to it. And that means that that's sort of like everyone gets their own pet rock. Everyone gets their own representative <laughs> in a state that small. That's, that's, right. that's, that's, that's sort of fine with me. Um, so what, what is your fundamental, uh, you're very good at not being a partisan Democrat and I wasn't expecting you to be, but like. Um, put aside, putting aside the partisan argument for the Democrats, what is your philosophical fundamental problem with the electoral college? Um, it's that it doesn't reflect because of the two senators, it simply doesn't reflect population. It violates one man, one vote, pure and simple. Um, you're, 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 you're basically the voter in Wyoming is overrepresented and the voter in California or Texas is underrepresented. So, so one of my problems with this, so I'm, I, I'm becoming more sympathetic. I'm still an electoral college defender because I like the constitutional structure. And I believe that I keep trying to remind people that the people don't elect the president, the States do. Right. Uh Um, and that's what the electoral vote thing is all about. And the States are sovereign and, and, um, and I understand 14th amendment changed a lot of these things, blah, blah, blah. That's all fine. But, um, I'm becoming more sympathetic to getting rid of the electoral college for reasons that make me nervous, which is that I don't, um, I think it would, it would arguably have a salutary effect on the parties mm-hmm. because all of a sudden the parties would have to reach for, they would have to campaign for majorities. That's right. And that would be a good thing. But to me, that feels like I'm putting the cart before the horse and saying we want to change the Constitution to help the parties when the parties aren't supposed to be part of the Constitution in the first place. And so it makes me nervous that all that said, um, when I hear people say, well, you know, Wyoming gets more votes than more representation in California. The hairs on the back of my neck go up a little bit because I never hear people say Vermont or New Hampshire or, you know, Democratic small Del- states, or Rhode Island, you know. But, so, uh, but it's not undemocratic in the sense that every state gets to vote on two senators, and this was the system that was set up. And I, and if you have a problem for, with your logic about the electoral college, basically what you're saying is you have a problem with the Senate, the existence yeah, I mean, of the I Senate. Think well, there's two problems. There's the one you mentioned earlier about the size of the House of Representatives, right? The, the House of Representatives just has not been allowed to grow when the country grew. That's one. And then the second one is with the, the two United States senators. And let's face it, where did that come from? It came from, it was a political deal, right? To get the small states to, you know, join the, join the union. Um, 
that was in an era where the states were more important. I mean, remember when, if we go back to this, to the 19th century in American politics, you went to Congress as your duty before you went home and got a really good job, like being mayor or being governor, right? I mean, because the, the country really was about states. It really wasn't about Washington. That has not been the case for 100 years now, okay? The, the country is one country, right? And, and so that deal, right, that compromise um, just doesn't comport with reality. People, uh, I, I like to tell the story about how F, when the Civil War broke out, the generals who had all gone to West Point together had to decide, were they going to go vote for the, were they going to join the Union Army or were they going to go back home? To a man, they went home. Lee went home to Virginia. They went home to their home states because in the time of the Civil War, states mattered more than nation. That's not the case anymore. You know, people move from one state to another. Yeah, they might have, you know, some fondness for the state they grew up in or something, but we are really much, much more one nation than we were um, at the time of the Civil War. So I just don't think this senator thing, giving two electoral college votes, I, I think it distorts our politics. But that's a real hard thing to change. Right? That's, and, that's a really hard change. And I mean, look, I, I hear where you're coming from, and I think it, I think there's merit to it, but I'm actually one of these guys that wants more power sent back to the states. I want people to think of themselves in terms of, their community first and not nationalize politics. One of the things that's poisoned this country is nationalizing political disagreements between people who are 3,000 miles apart is insane to me. Um, and so it feels like that's giving into that trend, but maybe that's inevitable. There's some trends you have to give into it eventually. You may be right. Um, but uh, there's also just the, I mean, it seems to me if, if this is the problem that people have and people don't really care about their states and um, they care about proportional representation. Let's break up California. That's easier to do than, you know, <laughs> ripping out the Senate from the Constitution. I mean, the Senate. Well, never I, don't think, I, I don't think you'll rip out the Senate from the Constitution. I think that any of the other, you know, plans, I mean, the, for instance, one of the things you could do is you could states could decide to award their two Senate electoral college votes to the national winner. That would be very simple. So, so let let this let you could have um, your congressional district votes go to the winner of that congressional district or to the winner of the state, and the two senators go nationally. So, um, to the national vote that that would solve the problem too, because you know the winner of the national vote would get from the get go would get a hundred electoral college votes, and it'd be mathematically pretty hard to then have somebody one nationally lose the electoral college. Um, so I'm not saying get rid of them. You can't get rid of them. They're in the, they're in the constitution, but you could change their, you could change the way the votes that represent the senators are allocated in the electoral college. Okay. So that, that I, I, I should, I, I took the bait too much on that. You, you're making a more, much more modest argument. Yeah, much more modest argument. Part yeah. of my problem is with these debates is that you start scratching at the surface with some of these people about it, and it turns out they just don't like the idea of the Senate. Yeah, no, you, you know, no, that the Senate is fine. It's just that the Senate, well, in in legislation, yes, but I can put that aside. 
in the Electoral College, it is the Senate sure. votes that have the most distortion. And, fair and, enough. Fair enough. You're making an argument about the Electoral College. My point is that when I hear people talk about how California gets two votes and Wyoming gets two votes, they're not necessarily just talking about the Electoral College. They're talking about legislatively, too. And I have... I've made peace with the idea that we have a bicameral legislature. Yeah, no, I, I, I have to. I have to. Okay. I wouldn't go that far. Uh, you know, Lane, I could really, I could do this all day because this is the stuff I geek out about a lot these days. And I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> That's not necessarily right. proud That's of it. But, That's um, wonderful. Um, and, um, but we've gone a little bit here and I actually got to write a column now. So, um, but I would love to have you back on because we didn't even get into the superdelegate stuff. And there's well, some of that stuff. We didn't get into any of that. So we've got m- much more to talk about. Okay, well, uh, Elaine K. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Big fan, and um, and I hope to have you back. Thank you, Jonah. Take care. Okay, so Elaine K. Mark has uh, left the studio. Um, this is one of these episodes of The Remnant that um, um, I really, I, I think it's pretty clear, I enjoy. I like Elaine K. Mark. I think she's really smart. She knows this stuff. There's so much more. Um, I wanted to geek out and talk to her about, so we will be having her back, whether or not listeners demand it. I just want to be clear about this. This is very, we're going to run this podcast. We're going to continue to run this podcast, much like the way I think political parties should be run for your own good. Um, now, just kidding a little bit. I mean, but uh, uh, there's just some people I'm going to have on here because I think they're great and they're interesting and they get, me to talk and think about things that I think are really interesting. And I've been thinking a lot lately. I didn't talk about it with her about, um, um, and I'll, I'm sure this will come up either in the G file or in the solo remnant about how basically one of the biggest problems we have in our, our culture today can be described as popularity bias. Um, there's a thing, I don't want to get all schumpeter about how capitalism is doomed and all that kind of stuff, but there's a problem inherent to capitalism. There's a problem inherent to democracy. There's a problem inherent to mass media and rating systems um, that assumes that which is more popular is somehow better. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes that's what social scientists call very, 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 very wrong. And, um, and we understand this in parenting. Uh, we understand this in all sorts of institutions like the military and in education that just because something is popular and more people want it than don't want it doesn't mean they should have it. And, um, anyway, I think that this is part of the problem that, that, vexes the political system, vexes our understanding of politics. Um, obviously it's inherent to democracy and to a certain extent that's good and right and proper, but it can go too far. And I think that's sort of a theme that I've been thinking about. I I know it's a theme I've been thinking about a bunch and it just kept coming into my head when we were talking about all this stuff. Um, and, um, I do recommend this podcast I mentioned earlier back from 2017, which sort of was one of the one of the original things along with some conversations with you all Levin and some others that, and also my book that got me on this kick about, about weak parties, um, where, uh, Elaine talks to John Ward. It's called the long game. You can go back and find it. I think it's from some point in 2017. And, um, I really want to talk to her about super delegates. 
um, which she talks about on there. Um, and maybe we can come back to it later. Other than that, um, oh, I also recorded this morning, early this morning, uh, with my old, my old friend and former colleague, uh, Jade Nordlinger, um, an episode of his podcast Q and a that should be coming out at Ricochet sometime before the sun goes out. I don't know what the production schedule is going to be, but sooner rather than later, I assume, um, uh, we will still have, uh, our vestigial baby toes. We won't have out evolved them, um, before that podcast comes out, maybe even much sooner than that. I don't know. Um, anyway, uh, but it was fun. He asked me just sort of, um, some fun, interesting bread and butter questions about life and whatnot. Um, and we talked about some other obvious things and, uh, and we're getting great feedback about the last two episodes of glop. Um, people are really digging it. Um, mostly because there's just the exquisite schadenfreudtastic joy of listening to John Padoritz come apart at the seam, trying to read the kitty poo club ads. Um, so with that, thanks everybody. Thank you again to Elaine K Mark. Um, Death to Brookings. Sorry, I had to say that. And I will uh, see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>